On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to talk about Council's Sobe bike decision, which wasn't really a decision because it was a tie vote, but on a technicality, Council ended up choosing not to continue to fund or to bail out the Sobe bikes downtown. Good idea, bad idea. We'll hear from you a little bit on that one. We're also going to talk about Canada's Parliament. A deal has been struck to allow Parliament not to resume sitting until late September which bothers me a great deal because it doesn't, to me, seem like our parliament and our way of governance should be something that we can barter for as part of a deal. That should be a necessity, but we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about baseball players and owners who seem unable to get out of their own way and figure out a deal to divvy up millions and billions of dollars and get a season going. All that coming up. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Sobe bike, bike sharing. If you live in the city of Hamilton, you're probably familiar with what this is. I'm assuming if you live downtown, you absolutely are. Wards one, two, or three, you see them around. They're blue and they have places where you can drop them off and you rent the bikes. They are bike sharing, just like the name says. You you pay for use and you ride to wherever, you drop the bike off, and then you can pick up another one if you want to. Anyway, they are in wards one, two, and three. So in the downtown area and into Dundas as well. And because Uber that has the contract has said that it will be canceling the contract as of June 1st, Uber came out or the city uh, was put in the position due to requests from people to say, Hey, we need you to bail us out. We need to have the bike share program continue. And we heard numbers anywhere up to $700,000 down to $400,000 to keep this going for Temporarily, while the city looked for a new company to run, council voted 8-8, tie vote loses, uh, 8-8 not to put any extra money into this. And so as a result, these bikes are going to be packaged up and put into storage in a city building somewhere. Again, great disparity of numbers about what it's going to cost to store them, everything from $15,000 to $150,000. Again, because it's 8-8, it's hard to actually say it was council's decision. It was a decision on a technicality. Want to hear from you on this one, because ultimately, as we often forget when we talk about public money and public projects and public jobs and public buildings and everything else, every time you hear the word public, take out the word public and replace it with taxpayers, because we forget that sometimes. This is taxpayers' money. These are tax dollars. These are dollars that you have paid to the city. So did you want your tax dollars to continue propping up this service? Or are you happy that your tax dollars are not propping up this service and may be now available for other things? And let me tell you why I am in the latter group. I am glad they did not do this. And I'll tell you why. It's nothing, it's not against bikes. It's not against Sobe. It's not against whatever. The city right now has told us very clearly, the mayor has said this, we're looking at the potential by the end of this summer or even by midsummer. Due to COVID, due to the fact that people can't pay their taxes right now and they've been given a break and on and on and user fees are not there and everything else, we're staring at the possibility of a 60 billion, sorry, 60 million, not 60 billion, that'll be really something, $60 million shortfall in the city of Hamilton, 60 million that we somehow have to make up for because we can't run an operational deficit. We are not allowed by law. So somehow we are going to have to find that money or the province and federal government are going to have to bail us out. Maybe they will. But in my view, this program has merit. Sobe Bikes has merit. But when we are looking at that big a debt, 
You have to know that the federal and provincial government are going to bail us out before you spend a dime on any new spending, on anything new. It's not a slight against Sobe. It's not a slight against bike sharing. It is the idea that we simply don't have money. We are drowning right now and we can't, in my mind, afford to do this. Now, you are fully entitled to a different point of view. Chris joins me on the line now. Chris, how are you today? What's good as all of us in this time? Scott, there you, you go. Stole, you stole my thunder. Okay, um, hit me with it again. I'm a, I'm a small businessman. Um, what is supposed to happen June 1st? Property taxes are supposed to be paid. How many small businesses are not going to pay their property taxes because they don't have them? Um, yeah, you nailed it. $60 million in debt. Where is this money going to come from? You know, I'm afraid to see what our property taxes, personal, forget business, personal property taxes. What are they going to be like next year? Chris, um, I can tell you something. Let me, let me jump in for one second. I want to, I want to hear from you again. Yeah. If we, if we don't get bailed out by the provincial or federal government, and we might, we don't know that yet, yet though. If we don't, you are looking at one of two things for absolute certainty, either double digits, big double digit increases in your property tax or huge cuts to services and programs across the city. And I don't think anybody wants either of those things, but we have to. I think we're going to see both of them. I, I just, you're right. We have to, where are we going to get this? Let's, let's in my own personal home, I can't go out and buy a hot tub right now. You know, I've got to look at every expense my wife and I make and have to decide, do we really need this? And Yes, I agree that at any time, the bikes are a good thing. I ride a bike. Uh, I've got a back problem. I don't ride my bike nearly as often. Um, so I'm not anti-bikes, but I am. City Hall has not had the best track record for being fiscally responsible to begin with. Um, this is a fringe, you know, it is a fringe benefit. Well, it's a luxury. It's, it's a luxury. Not, Some people will say it's essential. It's not a luxury to others. I agree with you. It's a luxury. It is a mode yep. of transportation to some people, but it really is a seasonal mode. I'm sorry. I have one of the the stalls or whatever they call them, the, the corrals where they put the bikes. In the wintertime, you can't even get to them. They're, they're, they're buried under snow. So, Chris, I really thank you for the call. I really do appreciate it. Uh, great point. Brian joins me. Brian, how are you today? Hey, Scott. How are you, buddy? I'm good. How are you I, doing? I'm great. I'm a kind of solution kind of person. All right. I'm saying that, that there's 23... Currently, we're 23 or 25 or 28 million, whatever number. Yep. Projected to 50 or 60 or again. So we're cutting $400,000 ask, correct? That got voted yep. down. Yep. And you're you're good with that, right? I'm, I, okay. I, I'm good with not just this. Any new money should not be spent right now, but that's my position. Oh, okay, perfect. I have an excellent solution that they just voted for. They're going to have to rescind their decision I have a $28 million saving. All oh, good. Okay. Do, all we got to do is cancel the uh, growth of Highway 53, Rymel Road from Centennial to, I don't know, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, the widening. Yep. Without, and Brian, just, you know what? It may surprise you. They just voted on it the other night, $28 million, Scott. And Brian, you, this may surprise you. I agree with you. I agree with you. I, th we are in a different world right now than we were two, three, four months ago. And I, I agree with you. This, this vote was the other evening. I'm talking about how stupid they are. About no, no. I, 
different it, it, they different things get rated differently a bike that's a luxury an extension of the road oh a widening of the road gotta have that yeah it's 28 million yeah we're in a pandemic gotta spend it Brian, I agree with you. I, I I do agree with you. I'm not in favor of spending more money on the Sobe bikes right now, but I'm also would be very fine and would in fact would like it if they would say, you know what, we can't do 28 million right now on road widening because we don't have the money. Okay, they just voted for it. Why are you talking about that? This, well, you know what? Sobe bikes. I'm up the, so- the mountain here. I would love the road wider. I'm not going to use Sobe bikes, but hey, we're going to tighten our belt, stroke the 28 million, and we're good. We're halfway there, right? Brian, it's a great call, and I appreciate your call. Thanks for doing it today. Uh, let me go to Michelle, who is waiting patiently on the line. Michelle, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? Excellent, thanks. Where do you stand on this? Okay. Um, I live in Ward 1, so I see a lot of people using the Sobe bikes. Yes. And for the individual user, it's an affordable, it's affordable for them. However, 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 I would like to know what makes up $700,000 of operating cost to run that program. That's a good question, Michelle. Uh, you know, it's going to be, you have to move the bikes around. And I mean, look, I, I don't know. I, I always well, that's think. What I, I'm asking. I've sent that question out. Yeah. I, and I always think, I always think that we end up with, uh, a lot of times anyway, with government programs, they seem to be a lot more expensive than if you gave it to someone else to do. Sometimes that's mm-hmm. for good. Sometimes that's for bad, but it does seem like a high number to, to run this. I don't know. So with the, Next year, so for the, if so if they raise the property taxes like double digit, it's going to affect those that are on fixed incomes. So as rent goes up, how many more homeless people does the city want? That's you know what, question. Michelle, these are all great points and I agree with you. And I think we're staring at if unless the higher levels of government bail us out, we are looking at either big cuts or we're looking at big big tax increases, and you're 100% right. You have people on fixed income whose property value may has gone up under their feet while they've been living in it, but their income hasn't gone up, but now their their taxes may be way, way higher. I don't know what they're supposed to do. I don't know what they're supposed to do. Uh, Anyways, um, these are things that I, I think about all the time, and sometimes I just shake my head in disbelief. (laughs) Michelle, I thank you for the call very much. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting story in Ottawa this week that uh, kind of slid under the radar and really should not have slid under the radar. This is a, I think this is a significant story. I think this is a big story. There's an awful lot of stuff going on, so not everything gets noticed. Here's, Here's where the story is. The NDP this week promised to support the liberals. Uh, they, they, they made a deal basically, and there's nothing wrong with po- political parties making deals. They do it all the time. This isn't about which political party or what the deal was. Uh, ultimately it was, they made a deal that if the liberals would push provinces to grant all workers in Canada, 10 days of sick time, the NDP then said they would support the liberals extension of the suspension of parliament. 
So you, you know, this, this is politics. We understand this. You scratch our back, we'll scratch your back. And I look, this discussion right now is not about the sick time issue. Uh, we can have a good discussion about whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. You may think it's the best idea ever. You may think it's a bad idea. That's a, that's a great discussion to have. That's not what this is about though. The issue to me is that we have parties that are striking deals. And I don't care what party it is. I would say the same thing about any of them. We have parties that are striking deals to keep parliament shut down for three more months, essentially. And I, I don't understand how keeping parliament closed could be a bargaining chip. That, that strikes me as entirely antithetical to our rules of government and the way we do democracy here. We should be in parliament. We should be having a vigorous back and forth. And within that, we can make deals and everything else. But it, to me, it, 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 it to me, it was troubling. Peter Grafe is a, per, a political science professor at McMaster University. You hear him regularly. He's a guy who we turn to often for his views and his opinions. Peter, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, I can honestly say, Peter, that I don't think in all my years I've ever sided with anything that the Bloc Québécois has ever said about anything ever. And I don't know if I can say ever many more times, but ever. Um, but when Bloc leader Yves-Francois Blanchet said, what's happening now is a deal between the NDP and the Liberals to shut down Parliament, I can't fully disagree with him. Is he completely wrong? Uh, no, he's not completely wrong. Uh, I mean, uh, Parliament, in a sense, has already been shut down. <laughs> what we have is not the meeting sure. of Parliament at the moment, but of kind of a special COVID committee. Um and it's going to remain such until September rather than uh, coming uh, before that. So, I mean, it's true we haven't had what we'd normally expect at this time of year, which would be uh, pretty, uh, well, the presentation of a budget and then, uh, you know, pretty intense scrutiny of the estimates ending uh, at the end of June and then usually a, a break, a recess until the end of September. What we're going to have instead this year is not really a discussion of the, of the public finances because I don't think we have a clue what they are at the moment. Yeah. And that's part of the, the criticism of that that the government has been able to evade really having to be clear to Parliament about how it's spending money, and yet that's kind of a core function of Parliament. Uh, but what we have instead is, you know, continued meeting of uh, a variety of committees, and then this uh, COVID oversight committee, which will, uh, again, be meeting, uh, I think, now up to four times a week rather than the three times a week that it's uh, been meeting. And there will be four uh, days this summer when the opposition parties will have an opportunity to discuss issues outside of covid and engage in this kind of new form of question period they have in terms of an intensive hour-long questioning. So, I mean, we are seeing something different. It's not the full parliamentary oversight that we're used to. Uh, what we're missing probably especially is the close regard over uh, public money. Um, on the other hand, there's other forms of oversight that we don't normally see at this time of year. Let me um, impose, I, I don't know how much teaching you're doing these days with everything going on, so let me uh, tap into your prof professorial side here. Um, what's, explain the point or the reason why we have the parliamentary process we do with question period and everything else. U ultimately, what is the, the reason that we believe that's essential? Uh, well, our system, unlike the American one, is based on uh, adversarialism. In fact, it's something you know many of us don't, uh, I'd actually like it, but a lot of people don't like it, with the idea that we get the best decisions if it's very clear who's making the decisions, uh, but that we also have a group of people whose job is to go at them hammer and tongs every day to try and find mistakes in what they've been done doing, to try and force them to justify why they've made decisions they've done. Um, and so the importance of things like question period is precisely to hold the government's feet to the fire. 
uh, in the hope that uh, you know things uh, the government is forced to do better because it's constantly uh, has its shortcomings put before the people or if it has to make you know choices or values between different things those are clear to us uh, as citizens so that when we have a chance to vote again we're clear about what that government did unlike in the United States where Congress can make a decision and uh, you know increasingly that we do see the split between the the Republicans and the Democrats but you actually don't know which congressperson voted for which law and like whether the mm. president voted uh, you know vetoed it or not and so it's really harder to hard to to hold people to account because if you say well you did this terrible thing in Washington and the congressman can say or congresswoman can say no I didn't and who's going to have a chance to go and see it whereas if you know, a member of the Liberal Party stands in front of us and says, this is what we're going to do, we can say, yeah, but your government didn't do that, and there's no place for that person to hide, because it's clear who the government is. So, so it's I a mean, level of transparency. Yeah, transparency, but also it's very clear for us, you know, who is the government, who are we holding to account when we vote? Um, and, and that's, you know, again, that's where question period is useful. Uh, but so are all the, you know, the various meetings and committees where governments have to bring their bills forward, uh, and again, opposition members can call witnesses and raise questions about whether there, you know, that's the right idea in the bill or whether there's problems that could be fixed in it. So, you know, we certainly are missing uh, parts of question period. Uh, we are missing the specific process of uh, public accounts and an examination of the budget. Uh, what we haven't lost is some ability for people to ask questions of the government, and also we have uh, committees meeting and calling witnesses, and so there's still some capacity to, to criticize the government in, in those forms. But if we don't need it now, if the decision has been made that we can get by at a time when we're spending more money and making more crucial decisions, more money than ever before and more crucial decisions than maybe since the war years, I don't know, um, do we really need to bring it back then in the future? Or, or do we get to the point where we say, look, we've just done just fine without it? Well, I mean, I think, uh, I think there's two kind of uh, big issues here. I think one, yeah, these are crucial things that I think a parliament worthy of its name should be meeting and, and asking questions about. Uh, but the fact that Canadians aren't up in arms, even when the Liberals very early on in this uh, situation you know, tried to give themselves almost a two-year time frame where they wouldn't really have to be uh, that accountable for the use of public money, um, the Canadians were quiet. Uh, they were concerned about the pandemic. And so, you know, there's, there's a way in which we get the government we deserve. And if Canadians aren't insisting on these things, then they, they kind of slip under the radar. I mean, the other thing is a bit more technical. It's like, how do we actually have Parliament in this situation? I mean, maybe now we can begin to to think about a post-pandemic situation, but even that, uh, people flying from all over the country, from places where there's still hot spots uh, coming together, it's it's still a difficult situation. So how do you make that work, I think, has been an important uh, and difficult question. I mean, I think the Conservatives are right to say maybe we've been too quick not to uh, get into these parliamentary sessions, but at the same time, how do you have Parliament if it's not all the members? Uh, you know, we, we have been having these kind of mini-parliaments where p- parties bring certain numbers of members, but we've seen, uh, you know, a number of backbenchers in the party saying, well, wait a second, uh, you know, it shouldn't be the party leaders who get to call what we're voting. I mean, really, we were elected as parliamentarians, and so if we're not in that room making decisions, we're not actually giving our voice. You know, we still do have the online thing going on, although I, I'm sure you've watched some of it. I watched some the other day and it was an exchange between uh, the finance minister and someone from the conservatives, and I can't remember who, and it was it was a joke. Like it's it, it becomes this silly thing because of the technology that it, it really, it becomes impossible for anybody to ask any real questions and hold anybody's feet to the fire, as you described. Yeah, uh, that's true. Although, again, uh, you know, what happens in normal times? I mean, people look mm. at question period 
and say, you know, there's a reason it's called question period and not answer period. They're saying, you know, <laughs> a bit of the same thing that, uh, uh, you know, governments uh, often won't really uh, answer questions. In some ways, uh, we may see, uh, you know, some of the conversations they have or the guided conversations they're having at the moment in some ways give a, a slightly less juvenile give and take in terms of the asking of questions. Now, whether we need, you know, a new process or just, a, you know, a change in in behavior, um, you know, it remains to be seen. But, you know, I mean, there may be some opportunity to try new things at the moment. But again, the, 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 the price that governments pay to not answering questions is uh, when we watch and we say that's terrible. And so, I mean, when, when Paul Calandria, for instance, was up and not answering, you know, standing up and answering every question in question period and talking about his family's pizzeria, I think Canadians looked and said that's not a serious government, and it, I think it cost the party, uh, that party at the polls in the next election. And I think similarly in situations like this, uh, if Canadians are concerned that the government's not a- a- answering questions and the opposition parties are able to show, look, that we aren't getting the answers we want, you know, it's then uh, that parties begin to pay a price for, for not answering questions. Would we be having a different discussion about this if it was a time when the Liberals or Conservatives or anyone else was having their leaders stand in front of a podium every day, lopping off billions of dollars of spending over and over and over and having an austerity time as opposed to times when we're giving away billions of dollars? Because I suspect then everybody would be screaming to get back into Parliament and vote on this. Yeah, I mean, in a different context. I mean, I think the context is less whether it's spending or cutting. I think the question is whether it's a crisis or not a crisis. I think at the moment, uh, you know, when you're in a moment of crisis, uh, generally political institutions uh, have a tough time surviving because people are willing to put aside their sort of sense of freedom in return for, you know, having some kind of uh, solution to a problem. And I mean, I think it's similar in times of war, where oppositions uh, get sh- shut down and muzzled by governments, you know, through censors and so on. Again, on this idea that the collective good uh, goes over the aspect of, of freedom. Um, so I think that's what we're seeing more at the moment. Um, I mean, certainly the Conservative Party, I think, has been in a, in a tough uh, way about this, because on the one hand, you know, they're arguing about the lack of oversight and spending. And I think, uh, you know, many people would agree that we probably would want a closer take on it, but we don't actually know what the alternative that's being offered by our opposition is in this moment. On the one hand, it's kind of a criticism of all this money going out the door, but when the question is asked, would you do anything different, uh, you know, would you, you not be sending curved money or income support and what would happen then, you know, suddenly uh, there's not much of an answer from the point of view of the Conservatives. So on the one hand, uh, I think they make a good point in principle, but in a way they have to fill the space to say, yeah, we want to be asking those questions and we want this kind of oversight. Um, they probably would be much in a stronger position if they had a clear view about what that is. Because on yeah, the other hand, it's about waste. On the other hand, it's like, yeah, but I wouldn't really do anything different if I was Prime Minister. For sure. And, and I think that at the beginning of this, certainly, there was widespread agreement that we had to do it and nobody was really fighting about it. My concern, and I think a lot of people who have been following this story, the concern is, all right, um, that was crisis time. We're seeming to pull out of it a little bit. But to give three or three and a half months now of clear runway to say, essentially, do whatever you want, that that's now where it starts to get concerning. We have to still have the process in place that we can, as needed, get into this and sort this stuff out if something arises. And that seems to be gone now for three months. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the formal process of Parliament, uh, you know, traditionally, yeah, the role of, of the opposition is to be able to examine spending, and we haven't seen that. 
Uh, in the modern moment, I think uh, most citizens actually aren't really looking to the opposition in these moments to be doing that and look much more to the Auditor General at the other end of it to say was the money spent properly and efficiently. Uh, yes, uh, I think we should actually probably put more emphasis on, on parliamentarians in the here and now than on the Auditor General. But So again, I think, I think there's a, a view to say yeah, maybe uh, more oversight was required at this moment. On the other hand, I don't think the government has a, a free path because to the extent... Uh, Canadians haven't had as much overlook at this moment. If if the Auditor General comes out and says, well, actually, there's big problems in how this was spent, in some ways, uh, it looks worse on the government in that context, in the sense that, you know, if I was a leader of, say, the Conservative Party, I could say, well, you, you asked us to trust you, and you betrayed that trust, you know, in this in this grave, wet manner, as opposed to if they get a chance to oversee these things at the moment, it's much harder for them later to say, well, wait a second, that was a bad choice. Uh, to the extent that they've already had a chance to have their say at this moment. And in a way, even if they vote against it, they kind of say Parliament supported this at the end of the day, as opposed to saying, well, the Parliament never really supported this. Why did he betray Canadians? Peter Gray from McMaster University. Always love having you on. Thanks for doing this tonight. You're welcome. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It seems as though baseball players and owners just cannot seem to get out of each other's way or their own way. It looks like at a time when people are trying to get sports back on the field, they're arguing about dollars again, as seems to be the case all the time. And who knows if we're even going to have a season now. Anyway, we'll get to that in a moment. First, your quiz question this evening. Sorry if it's a little um, depressing and dour and down. That was not the intent, but I think it turned out to be that way. Outside of what state-sounding building was John Lennon killed? Let me rephrase that another way. John Lennon was killed outside a building in New York City. The building kind of had a state-sounding name. What was the name of the building where John Lennon was was assassinated? Which, by the way, if you are famous, you're assassinated. If you're just an average Joe and someone kills you, you're murdered. It's a slight despair. It is a slight, you know, thing, a little little wordplay, but it's true. No one who's not famous has ever been assassinated. You must be famous to be assassinated. You are merely otherwise murdered. But again, kind of bringing us down into a dour, dark territory. Outside of what state sounding building was John Lennon killed? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Will is in the home office. Will will take your name. Will will take your guess if you think you know the answer to this one. We'll get to the people who knew it and the right answer at the end of the show. In the meantime, a man who just finished a work day almost as long as council's meeting last night. Not sure if it was quite that long, but it's within an hour or two. Rick Zampern, who just got off the air of 900 CHML. Sir, how are you? Have you? I mean, are you even awake at this point still? I, I am awake, but truth be told, I'm actually going to be reading the morning news tomorrow, so... In a couple of hours, I'm going to be catching some Z's and then basically back on the air. But I'm looking forward to it. Uh, yesterday or the day before, I think it was yesterday, you tweeted something out that it was just a throwaway of first in, last out. And it was like, wait a second, that's your day every day. That's your day every day. There's never a day you're not the first one in the station and the last one out of the station. Yeah. Just saying. If those, just... if people who people who don't know Rick don't know, he is the hardest working man in the radio business no questions whatsoever. So golf clap for Rick Zamperin. That's an excellent job. <laughs> I appreciate it. So uh, speaking of hardworking people, 
it appears as though baseball players, um, while maybe hardworking, seem to be working, Rick, much harder at the financial side of things right now because we are now looking like we may be in a stalemate. And we talked about this on the show a few days ago about the concept behind this. The players say it looks like we could have, we being the players, could have an 81-game season, so half a season. Therefore, simply pay us half our contract, and we're fine. We're good. And the owners are saying, yeah, you know what? It's half a season, but in addition to the 81 games we're going to lose, we also have no fans in the stands, meaning no ticket revenue, meaning no beer sales, no hats sold, no popcorn, no hot dogs, on and on and on. Revenues are going to be through the floor. Therefore, we don't want to pay you half your salary. We want to pay you a percentage below that. How is it, Rick, that even when baseball players and owners are all making so much money, they still can't seem to get out of their own way. Yeah, I, I don't think this scenario with baseball is ever going to end because I think Major League Baseball is a pretty powerful organization. The Players Association has grown in its power. It has some you know mega agents that have you know uh, high profile clients and make millions upon millions of dollars. And we're talking about millions upon millions of dollars in terms of players still getting paid a lot of money. So, for instance, and, and the main bugaboo with, from the players' standpoint is that back in March, they had agreed to a formula in which they would get a prorated salary over an 82-game season at the time. That was the proposition on the table. So um, Mike Trout, who's the highest-paid player in baseball, he makes roughly $37 million a season, under a prorated basis, would get, I think it's like $19 million and change. So still a, a huge chunk of cash. He'll still under, get by somehow. He would still scrape by and <laughs> be able to put food on the table for his family. Maybe. Yes. Maybe. Well, well, maybe, while playing the game that he Depends loves. Depends what his family likes to eat. <laughs> That's true, too, yes. <laughs> uh, under this, uh, what they're calling a, a, a sliding scale, uh, Mike Trout would nowhere near earn... Uh, $19 million. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of 5.7 and change uh, as a base salary. And if the Los Angeles Angels make the playoffs, uh, they also get paid for uh, playoff games. And I think at the most, he would get around nine and a half, nearly 10 million bucks when all is said and done. But, you know, obviously well off the pace of 19 million and way less than obviously 37 million. And, but, but I think the main bugaboo is in March, they had agreed to this. Know, prorated half a season kind of salary, but the sliding scale is if if you're amongst the top earners in this scale, and that's anyone anyone making twenty million dollars or more, you're going to earn twenty percent of that. If you're at the low end of the scale, which is the league minimum of you know just shy of six hundred thousand dollars, you're going to get about seventy two percent of that salary. Actually, between seven hundred or five hundred sixty three thousand and one million, you're going to get seventy two percent of that salary in this prorated um, uh, sliding scale. So, uh, yes, there, there's a lot of money on the table. I understand where the owners are coming from in terms of not being able to capitalize on all that stuff that goes within the stadium, but they're still making money as well. And I think each side wants the biggest piece of pie that they could possibly get, and that's where we stand right now. Yes, although... Well, first of all, when we're talking about these numbers, I understand for people listening right now who are rolling their eyes. I agree with you. I oh, understand yeah. that this is 
neither Rick nor I are necessarily proponents that athletes should be making this much money. That said, if the athletes don't make it, the owners are going to make it. Someone's going to make this amount of money because that's the money that's in the game. It doesn't make it something we like. I would, as I've said a million times in the show, Rick, I would love it if we could roll back the whole system and make tickets. Like I got a ticket in my desk drawer here that I think was eight fifty for a third row seat for a Blue Jays game. You know, <laughs> wow. that's not the way it is anymore. That's from 1983 or four. I'd love it if we could roll everything back to that. We can't, you can't undo it. You can't untangle all the contracts and everything else. But the reality here is you are talking billions and billions of dollars. I just, I, I always find it stunning that when you're talking about that much money, that it becomes more of a fight than if you were talking about table scraps. Surely there's a way that you could come to some sort of agreement and, you know, yeah, the players make a little less than 50% and the owners make a little less than they would have made. This can't be that difficult. It can't be. No, it can't. The sticky situation is that from an ownership perspective, they're all on the same playing field in terms of not having fans in the stands. They're not necessarily all on the same playing field in terms of their broadcast field. Some teams, like the New York Yankees, for example, the Yes Network, they capitalize on that. Not every team has their own TV network that they could draw revenue from. Um, uh, from a player perspective, th- there's a hierarchy. There's you know your top tier 20 million plus guys. You have guys earning between 10 and 20, and then you have a whole bunch of guys earning way less than $10 million. And each of those guys wants what they feel they're deserved in you know, a season that's cut in half for a 162-game season based on their past performances, the contract that they signed, what they feel that they're worth. Uh, so it's, the pie isn't necessarily uh, in half when it comes to the players. Between players and owners, yeah, you can chop it in half, and the owners are going to get their half, and the players are going to get their half. But when you chop it down from player to player, some players are going to get more. It's just based on what they can bring to the table. I, I, as I say, I just, I, I'm always amazed when you're talking, look, if I'm Mike Trout, as much as I, I'm never going to make the kind of money he is, I'm never going to make five point. What did you say it was? 5.9 that he might oh, make yeah. at the lowest end. Yeah. Um, I'm never going to make $39 million a year or whatever he makes. And so it's very hard to feel sorry for Mike Trout. And I don't, I don't, but if you're expecting to make 37 or $39 million and they say you're going to make five, I understand why he would be upset. I do. That said, again, surely there's somewhere in between that you can strike a deal and say, look, we all understand the circumstance we're in here. Rather than sour the entire public on us that we want on our side because we want them to tune into our games and support us, rather than look like a bunch of greedy, rich jerks who can't agree on billions of dollars, let's quietly just go away, come up with some kind of number that both of us don't feel great about, but you know what? We can come out and look happy and and we're still making millions of dollars and move from there. I, I just It stuns me always, Rick, that baseball and other sports too, but baseball has such a long track record of not being able to do that. Yeah, and you know the, the, what this league needs, what the Players Association needs is some kind of forward thinking to say, Listen, if we don't get our act together, I know we're in a pandemic and, and this might not even fly to begin with, but what happens next year and the season after that if we you know, piss off some fans and they don't come back to baseball, um, you know, they're going to have other options if the NHL uh, you know, launches their plan, if basketball comes back, if football kicks off like it plans to do this fall, uh, you know, golf's continuing to do their thing, NASCAR is already underway. 
there's going to be other options. And as we saw in 94, when they went on strike, there was a lot of other options that baseball fans went to, and many of them never came back. I know that I was just going to ask you you. the McGuire home run battle was, you know, the saving grace that kind of saved baseball again, or brought a lot of those fans back. But yeah, this could have everlasting damaging effects like it did in 94. I I was just going to ask you about 94 because remember we came off now in Toronto in this area, it was a high because we had 92 and 93 where the Jays won, but nonetheless, baseball was in great shape then. And all of a sudden the strike of 94 comes along. And if people remember when they came back in 95, there were empty stadiums, half empty stadiums, three quarters. People were sour at the players. People were really sour at the players because again, you refuse to play even though, and again, whether you pick the owners or the players, millions of dollars were available for you. And you said, not enough, not enough. And I get it. I get it when you're comparing yourself to other athletes and whatever, these are not normal days. These are not normal times that we're living in right now. And I think that makes it five times more problematic for the players. When you have millions of people out of work who are scrambling to put food on their table and you say, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't play for 6 million bucks a year. What what do you think I am? A savage? I mean, that's not going to play. And, you know, the, the same, almost same scenario played out in 94. We were in a recession at the time. I think it went from 92 to 96 or somewhere in that in that area. Uh, and, th- and there was, you know, not as many people as there are now out of work, but there were still people who, you know, were shuffled out of positions because, uh, you know, it was just the cyclical thing. The recession had hit again. Uh, you know, people have uh, were, were looking for jobs, and, you know, they find out that, the Major League Baseball Players Association is going on strike because they want millions of dollars more. And then, yeah, a lot of people soured on that and went, uh, and went elsewhere for their entertainment dollar. You also made one other great point that I, I sort of skipped over there. I meant to mention it. And uh, that is that, you know, the, the local TV deals are a real interesting thing because you got players in the New York Yankees making tons of money, but they have a massive TV deal. They, you could you could play in empty stadiums for the rest of time eternal and the Yankees are fine. Same with the Dodgers, same with the Angels, same with the Cubs. But you start talking about the Milwaukee Brewers or the Kansas City Royals or some of these other teams that are in small markets that don't have huge populations. And y- you start having salary structures that mean you could potentially be losing money. I mean, now we're not talking about the Yankee owners who are making money no matter what. You're talking about owners who are losing money, but you can't make two different worlds for the rich owners and the poor owners. It has to be across the board. And yet it seems again that you're talking about two sides that just can't seem to figure how to, they've got the world's biggest cake and they can't decide how big the pieces should be. They slice up for each other to eat. I mean, it's just, it's stunning. Imagine a birthday party and you've got a cake that fills your entire room and there's 10 kids and you can't figure out how to divide it. Yeah. I mean, it just is stupid. The, the Major League Baseball doesn't have to look too far for one of the greatest examples of the strongest league on the planet. And that's the National Football League, which many, many moons ago instituted a revenue sharing plan in which the Buffalo Bills of the world and the Green Bay Packers of the world could compete with you know, the New York Giants and, you know, the San Francisco 49ers and the Dallas Cowboys and all these mega uh, uh, million dollar, billion dollar grossing teams could all compete on the same level because they're all kind of sharing from the same pool. And if Major League Baseball went that route, I know it's going to get, uh, you know, some some uh, uh, eyebrows raised and, and people in knots, but uh, I, I think it's the way to go. If you have a Well, that's what the players plan, are fighting, though. 
Rick, yep. that's what the players say they're fighting right now. They, they think this is the thin edge of the wedge to pry the door open and get a salary cap or revenue sharing or whatever. Yeah. And they're saying, no, we can't, we can't let them have even a little foothold here. And again, could, could, are there not lawyers out there that can strike a deal that says, look, it's COVID year. These are wildly uncertain and unusual times for this one year. And that's it. And then we go back to our old deal. Here's how it works. I, I, I don't get it. Yeah. Well, last time I checked, uh, you know, there was mega millionaires in the NFL and the NBA and the NHL, and they all have, you know, cap type systems or luxury cap type systems similar to, to what baseball has. But if there is a hard cap or, or whatever the case is, however they figure it out, that revenue sharing plan still can go a long way and make a lot of guys rich. Uh, how much does the top paid quarterback in the NFL make this year for 16 games? Uh, I think it's 37, 36, 37 million. Uh, yeah, Mike Trout in money. there. Mike Trout money. Rick, just before I let you go, Tony has been waiting patiently on the line, called in because he wanted to have a comment on this. We'll take Tony's call today. Tony, how are you tonight? Not too bad. Just listening and uh, getting frustrated at some of the conversations going on about different articles uh, on there. But tonight, uh, you're talking about the sports. I heard one time, uh, you're talking about money and the, the wages that they get paid. And I always used to think, oh, wow, 10, 15, 20, 30 million dollars for, for a year. That's tremendous money. But then I found out over an article that was uh, put out or over the radio that by the time uh, these players get this 30 million dollars, they only get about a third of it. Between the cost of the uh, federal tax and the provincial, uh, the state tax and the civil tax, they take about two thirds of it. And, and ter- it- there, there are certainly going to be taxes, Tony. There's no question. And you have your agent to pay and other things. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There is. I don't think it's a third. I think it's a little less than half, but nonetheless, it, it's, it's, well, it's a big chunk. percent in Canada. Yeah. Uh, Tony, listen, it's, it's a great point. Uh, Rick, <laughs> If you were if you were Mike Trout and you were losing fifty percent, let's say, of your forty million dollar contract, do you have a reason to gripe, or are you still in the position where you should say, mm, "I'll live"? Yeah, I, I, I think they're okay. And the, and the fact of the matter is, you know, if you're playing on a team in Florida, say you're with the Miami Marlins or the Miami Dolphins or the Jacksonville Jaguars, there's no state tax there, uh, and depending on your contract structure you are also taxed when you visit other states. So if you go play a basketball game in Utah or you're playing a baseball game in New York State or a hockey game in uh, California, you're taxed when you're playing in that state. So, yeah, that, that's certainly in the equation. It's not, uh, it's not a, you know, a substantial amount in terms of these players are poor. They're still making millions upon millions of dollars. And let's not forget, especially the guys at the top rung, they have their endorsement deals. They have so many sponsorship opportunities that, uh, yeah, they're doing okay. Uh, Tony, I thank you for the call. Rick, just before I let you go, I, I mean, it, again, I, I don't, I don't, I don't begrudge any athlete making his money. I don't, mm-hmm. because we know that the sports world pays these kind of salaries. And if you can be good enough at it, uh, you know, I wish there were other lines of work, doctors and stuff that made more, that were more in balance with it, but that's not the world we live in. That said, uh, while I don't begrudge anybody making their dough, it just, it's such a bad look if you and your owners and the, whatever you want to call it, cannot come to some sort of agreement. It just, it's just such a bad look. Without a doubt, it's a black mark on the players and the sport. I think players first 
because you know they they come out looking like the greedy guys and the sport in general because as a fan you're thinking oh, I don't want to deal with this or I don't want to read another article about this guy wanting more or this association wanting more and they'll turn their attention to to somewhere else from you know to, to defend the players a little bit their careers are very short they're trying to make as much money as they can in that short amount of time they know that at least the star players fans are going to go to the games to watch them play so they're putting out a, a service, if you will, to attract those fans that make the owners money. That's the argument from a player's perspective. And if you're an owner, you're making billions upon billions of dollars. Yeah, you might have a payroll of 200 plus million dollars, but your revenue is in the billions, so they can afford it. Yeah, at the end of the day, optically, this just looks like a pile of poop. Uh, let me just do a little math here while I'm talking with you. And uh, my calculator on my computer is working really slowly here. So, uh, but just, just if you make $50,000 a year, which I guess right. would probably be a, you know, an average person, maybe a little below average in Hamilton, you would have to work 400 years to make what one baseball or other athlete is going to make in a $20 million a year. So wow. I, I know that players say, you know, I've got to prepare for my future. I've got to make my money now because it's a short career. We hear that all the time. Unless yeah. you're planning to live for something in the neighborhood of 16,000 years, <laughs> I think you're probably going to be okay if you take in a little less than your full $20 million contract. Right. The Just difficulty is in. when one guy gets a $20 million deal, the next guy who has uh, an equal or greater season to that individual says, where's my piece of the pie? And, of course. Uh, that, that's the hill we slide down. That's how it works in radio too. I mean, that's why oh, yeah. you work so hard. Rick Zamperin, I don't know yeah. if the people know this, $37 million a year he's making on CHML here. Yeah, that's after taxes. Or is that yen? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I know the number was in there somewhere. Yeah. Rick Zamper, appreciate you doing this. Thanks very much. You got it. Anytime. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.